ماذا يحدث في العالم؟ Everybody, welcome to another solo episode of What in the World. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. How is everyone doing? Good, I hope. Unless I don't know, maybe you're the type who thrives on doing bad. In which case, I hope you're doing bad. I hope everything is going exactly the way you want it to in your life right now. I'm sure it's not. It never is in pretty much any life. Get used to that. If you haven't already, boy, what a depressing start. What the fuck am I even talking about? This is what happens when I don't write out an intro like a professional. I just wing it and it turns to gloom and doom immediately. Anyway, on this week's episode, I'm talking about a thing that is very near and dear to my heart. It is a topic that has come up so, so, so many times over the past two or three years now on this podcast. It's been such a long time. We have so many episodes of this fucking thing. And that, of course, is the situation in Venezuela. Last time we checked in, there was a coup attempt, but don't call it a coup. It's not a coup, but it was a coup. I wrote a Medium article about it, not size-wise, the website medium.com. If you go to the Unpops Word Store, which that's a whole debacle. I'll talk about that another time. But I have an article out there about the coup in Venezuela that happened in April. Attempted coup, depending on who you ask. But that didn't work. And that was the last we heard from Venezuela in a major news on American networks kind of way. But rest assured, things have been happening there still this entire time, if you can believe that. One thing that happened on June 19th, the Washington Post delivered the headline of my fucking dreams. Here's what it says. With Maduro entrenched in Venezuela, Trump loses patience and interest in issue, officials say. Which fucking hallelujah. I've been saying for a long time now that the best possible course of action for the United States as it relates to Venezuela is to just leave them the fuck alone. And we've had a very hard time doing that since like 2003. That's more than 15 years ago. We've been fucking with that place for a long goddamn time. And if we would just stop, things would improve significantly. And are we on the road to that? We might be. Stay tuned till the end of this episode to find out. So back to that coup that happened. It was late April, early May. Juan Guaido, who is the key opposition figure in Venezuela, was sure he was on the road to toppling Maduro. He took to social media and said, hey, look at all these soldiers I got around me. We're going to topple this government. Take to the streets and join me. And the people of Venezuela, for the most part, said, no, thank you. And it's anyone's guess as to why that was, but I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that people probably didn't believe he actually had the military on his side. 
And he didn't actually have the military on his side, which is crucial when toppling a South American government. Go through your history books. It rarely happens without the help of the military. So none of that shit worked. And Trump, as you'd expect, was reportedly furious. He felt that National Security Advisor John Bolton and his director for Latin American policy, Mauricio Claver Carroll, got played by both the opposition and key Maduro officials. He reportedly chewed out his entire staff in an April 30th meeting and said he might have to get on the phone himself to get something done. Which, what the fuck does that even mean? Fixing Venezuela has been a phone call away this entire time? And what, we just fought a years-long campaign of financial warfare culminating in a literal murder plot was just easier? Get the fuck out of here. There's no one you can call to fix this. And now, fast forward a couple months, and Maduro is still in power. There's no end in sight to that. And the U.S. doesn't have much of a plan moving forward. And now Trump's getting bored with it all, which is great. And that frustration apparently stems from the fact that he always viewed Venezuela as, and this is a a quote from the Washington Post article, low-hanging fruit, and that he could use Venezuela to, and this is another quote, get a win and tout it as a major foreign policy victory. And that's the Washington Post quoting someone inside the Trump administration. So please tell me more about how the U.S. pushing for regime change in Venezuela was just the nonsensical conspiracy theory ramblings of a disgraced dictator. Because that's that was the that was the official line for the longest time. If anyone suggested that the U.S. had eyes on intervening in Venezuela, you were a conspiracy theorist. And now we've gone from calling people conspiracy theorists to articles in the Washington Post about how Trump has gotten tired of pushing for regime change in Venezuela, which that alone implies he's been at it a long fucking time. Embrace your inner conspiracy theorist, people. You're going to need it. Unless Trump loses in 2020, (laughs) right? He won't. Anyway, so Maduro has had lots to say since the April uprising. He called it a fascist plot to overthrow him. And I kind of call it that also. He uh, cracked down on those involved in the plot. Six military and police officials were arrested. Communications Minister Jorge Rodriguez suggested the coup had been brought down by informers within the group. He said more than two dozen people including active and retired military, had been involved. The plot was allegedly meant to seize three key military bases and kill the president and his wife and several top government and socialist party figures. Hell yeah, freedom on the march, baby. It's time to get those murderers out of office by committing a bunch of other murders and replacing those old murderers with new murderers. That is how democracy works. But fortunately, none of that worked. I think I'm safe to say, fortunately, a murder plot did not work, right? We can all agree on that. But that doesn't mean we're completely out of the water in terms of war with Venezuela. If nothing else, Juan Guaido still thinks it's an option. He actually, in a recent interview, said there are three options for fixing Venezuela. Maduro leaves, military overthrow, or military intervention. And... 
in case anyone's unclear about the difference between those last two, military overthrow would mean the Venezuelan military overthrows Maduro. Military intervention means either we or one of our allies goes in and takes Maduro out of office. But here's the thing. No one gives a shit about what that guy thinks anymore, which is a good thing. But we'll get to that in a minute. For now, I just want to remind everyone what the real problem is here. The problem is the people and their safety and their ability to live a normal life without being used as bargaining chips in a conflict between the United States and the socialist regime of Venezuela. And what this whole thing is causing, more than anything else, is a massive migration crisis. The migration crisis in Venezuela is on pace to become the worst in the world. It may exceed 8 million people by the end of the year. Granted, a lot would have to go wrong for the number of people fleeing the country to reach 8 million by the end of the year. But it's a possibility, and that would surpass the 6.7 million people who fled Syria over the last eight years. And keep in mind, this isn't an economic or voluntary migration. This is a forced migration. And the UN estimates that 4 million people have fled already. And so wrap your head around that. 4 million have fled already, and there are some estimates that it could reach 8 million by the end of the year. We're halfway through the year already. So in the last half of the year, as many people as have fled Venezuela throughout this entire crisis, that same amount could flee just in the next few months. That's how fucking bad things are there. And obviously, forced migration is a huge problem all around the globe right now. In general... There are more people displaced today than at any time since World War II. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but look up how World War II ended. It did not go well for the people who were displaced. And what makes Venezuelan migrants different in 2019, as opposed to everyone else fleeing their war-torn countries, there is a severe lack of funding for Venezuelan refugees Aid dollars available per Syrian refugee right now, $5,000, which still not a ton. Aid dollars available per Venezuelan refugee, $100. $100. The UN's 2019 response plan for the Venezuelan migration crisis has only been funded 21%. This is the biggest migration crisis happening on our half of the hemisphere. And somehow, the only way we can find it in our hearts to intervene is to impose more sanctions on the country of Venezuela. Sanctions that are killing people, poor people. These sanctions aren't taking out top administration officials, even if they place them on administration officials. That's like fining a corporation for doing something wrong. They're just going to trickle those fucking costs down to the consumers. And the same thing is happening here. These sanctions are killing people. And that is our only response to one of the biggest humanitarian disasters in recent memory. And why is that our response? Because we've been causing a lot of this humanitarian disaster. And as you'd expect, this migration of people from Venezuela, people fleeing Venezuela, 
is causing a lot of surrounding countries to crack down on entry access for Venezuelans. Peru, Chile, and Ecuador have all imposed new restrictions on entry into the country recently. Colombia has taken on the most, currently hosting at least 1.3 million displaced Venezuelans. And that's putting a huge strain on their public services. There are people literally sleeping in the streets, begging for food in Colombia. And that's the kind of thing where people who are so opposed to migration of any sort will go, see, that's what happens when there's a crisis like this and people flee to another country. It just puts a strain on that country. It's putting a strain on that country because the other countries around it don't want to help. They want to help the United States topple Nicolas Maduro. But if that means millions and millions of people in Venezuela have to suffer and potentially die, that's fine. So yes, of course the number of Venezuelans fleeing to Colombia is putting a strain on Colombia because none of the countries around them want to help. And the sanctions we're imposing are just making that situation worse, which shouldn't surprise anyone. And by that, I mean sanctions that we put in place as recently as 2019. So we're still putting sanctions on Venezuela, sanctions that are impacting the people far more than they're impacting the people we claim to want to take out of power. For damn near 20 years now, our policy in Venezuela has been to punish the people for supporting an administration we don't like. And this is the end result of that policy. That said, Venezuela has come up with an interesting way to get around sanctions. What the sanctions we imposed in January did effectively was to block the sales of Venezuelan oil to U.S. refiners. And that's a huge blow to the economy of Venezuela because the United States has historically always been one of their uh, biggest buyers when it comes to oil. So what PDVSA, which is the state-run oil company in Venezuela, what they're doing is revamping one of their processing operations that is currently geared toward U.S. processors. And there's a whole bunch of oil science words behind the decision, but they mostly deal with the type of oil Asian nations are able to handle as opposed to the kind we deal with the most in the United States. And this is being done through something called PetroPR, which is a joint venture between PDVSA and U.S.-based Chevron. So that's a U.S. company helping Venezuela get around sanctions put in place by the United States. How interesting is that? Meanwhile, let me offer people the option to subscribe on Patreon and pay in Venezuelan Petros, and I would probably be in Guantanamo Bay right now. But whatever. Corporations run this country, baby. And speaking of that coup that we're not allowed to call a coup, as I mentioned earlier, it failed mostly because Maduro still has the support of the military. And if you're wondering why that is, there is a really interesting Reuters report that came out about a month ago. I'll link to it on unpops.com. And it's all about why the military in Venezuela still supports Maduro. And it's exactly what we've said on this show before. Chavez at one point, Hugo Chavez, Nicolas Maduro's predecessor, made the military really huge. And he took to paying off 
that huge military as a means of maintaining their loyalty. And Maduro continued that when he took office, he gave the military control of things like food and raw material distribution. So literally the pipeline that feeds the people of Venezuela is controlled by the military, as is the exchange market for uh, selling Venezuela currency and exchanging it for U.S. dollars, which is a whole other thing that we've done entire episodes of this podcast about. But one example of that, a National Guard general and a few military deputies manage PDVSA, which again is the state-run oil company. Another thing Maduro and Chavez did was embed intelligence agents among the military ranks, which when you hear people talk about this aspect of their time in power, what they say is that it was done to instill paranoia and to crush dissent before it even happens. And the military is, by all accounts, a mess when it comes to chain of command, but the top is still unified around Maduro. Some, like Defense Minister Vladimir Padrino, are almost as much a face of the administration as Maduro. And one of the ways that the Maduro regime keeps the military in their pocket, or at least the important parts of the military, is handing out military ranks. They have 150,000 troops in the Venezuelan military, with as many as 2,000 admirals and generals doesn't sound like that many when you compare it to 150,000 overall, but compare it to the U.S. military. We have more than a million troops and about half as many admirals and generals. And that's where the chain of command issues come into play for the Venezuelan military, because they've appointed all these high-ranking officials who aren't really doing that much and shouldn't necessarily have the job they have, but because they have it, they're very loyal to the Maduro regime. And that's good for the Maduro regime, but it creates chaos in the military because with so many bosses running around, you're never really sure who to report to. Sometimes you have to report to more than one person. Sometimes you report to one person and another person's thing can cancel out what that other person did. Fucking chaos. But that chaos serves another purpose. It keeps the military too disorganized to unify in opposition against Maduro. And we've mentioned on this show before that one of the things that must be keeping Maduro in power is that he's given all of this financial control to the military, so they want to keep that going. So they'll keep him in power. But also, giving that control to the military along with the currency controls that are still in place that have caused this crazy black market to exist, it's killing the people of Venezuela. So Maduro is sort of in this place where he's in power and it's a bad situation. And the only real alternative for him to fix it is to kind of let the military come in and murder him and just take over. Because that's what's going to happen if... He removes these currency controls and takes distributing food and resources to the people out of the hands of the military. And it feels like that's kind of what we want. I think one thing that gets a little underreported when it comes to Venezuela 
in terms of mainstream media outlets is the fact that Maduro still has a fair amount of support among the people, quite a bit of support. Those people who support Maduro are often portrayed as thugs or loyalists or what have you, but they're just Maduro supporters. They're people who support one side of the government, and then there's a lot of people who support the other side. And it's not a situation that should be resolved through murder, probably. And that's kind of the situation Maduro's in, is if he does the things that need to be done to fix his situation, the military's going to fucking murder him. And he doesn't have to guess as to whether that would be the case, because Hugo Chavez already tried it. In 2002, not lo- which I think was three or four years after Chavez got elected, at first he had the military in charge of implementing all of these social programs that gave food and resources to the people. And as the years went on and more of his allies were elected to governorships and mayorships throughout Venezuela, it became pretty apparent that he could let the military do military shit and let the mayors and governors of those other areas implement the social programs. And so that's what he tried to do. And there was a fucking coup immediately. And it was a coup backed by the United States and the same opposition party that we're trying to put in power now. And all Chavez did was take that control over distribution of wealth and food and resources out of the hands of the military. And that was enough, even back in 2002, when things were relatively good in Venezuela. That was enough for the military to turn on Hugo Chavez, who was wildly popular. How popular? So popular that he was back in office two fucking days later. They arrested him, took him away, and the people took to the fucking streets and demanded that he be put back in office. And he was. And that was years and years and years and years ago. The military in Venezuela this entire time has been getting rich, essentially, off of their role in distributing essential resources to the people of Venezuela. So I don't know. Does that help anyone see this from Nicolas Maduro's point of view at all? The only real options we've given him so far are a couple different choices of who might murder him in office. That's a real pickle. Your choices are either keep things the way they are and be protected by the military up to the point that the United States sends NATO in. Because don't forget, Colombia just became the first Latin American country to join NATO. Uh, So you stay in power and give the military what they want until the United States and their friends literally kick the door down and fucking murder you. Or you do what needs to be done and lift those currency controls, which would massively undercut that black market that the military is running, at which point the military is going to come in and murder you. So if you're wondering why Nicolas Maduro refuses to leave office, even though it seems like everyone wants him to, it's probably because he doesn't want to get fucking murdered, mostly for being the successor to a guy who had the gall to implement some programs that benefited poor people in Venezuela. I don't think I'd want to be murdered either. 
personally. So I highly encourage anyone who's interested to go out and read that Reuters report about why the military still supports Maduro. It's a pretty fascinating read. And it did seem for a little while there after that most recent unsuccessful coup attempt that we were still going to try and get in there in a military way. Last month, for example, the U.S. military accused a Venezuelan fighter aircraft of aggressively shadowing a U.S. Navy EP-3 Ares II plane over international airspace. You know, the U.S. Navy EP-3 Ares II. I personally think it's a little bit of a downgrade from the U.S. Navy EP-3 Ares I, but, you know, it's a subjective thing. And this happened the same day Trump announced more sanctions against top Venezuelan military officials. Venezuela claimed the plane was in their airspace and they reacted accordingly. They claim they've intercepted more than 70 unauthorized crafts this year alone, which probably around that same time, more than half of Venezuela's 23 states lost power all at the same time. The government blamed the blackout on an electromagnetic attack. It was another in a long line of blackouts that have been plaguing the country off and on since March. For what it's worth, the suggestion that these blackouts are due to an EMP attack are coming primarily from Russia. Russian Deputy Defense Minister Colonel General Alexander Fomin, okay, Colonel General, said during an interview with RT that, and this is a quote, you can see that an operation called blackout is underway. It is a planned and artificial closure of energy facilities, which also negatively affects the atmosphere in the country and only aggravates the existing crisis, mainly the economic crisis. And Russian officials have vowed to help Venezuela investigate the source of the attacks. Here's the thing. I don't know. An EMP attack? It is also summer in the Western Hemisphere in Venezuela, significantly closer to the equator than... uh, I am, if nothing else. So it could just be that they're struggling and that they haven't been taking care of their power grid and it's all catching up to them. Or you know what? Could be a fucking EMP attack. If you are waiting for me to put that past the United States, pack a fucking lunch. If we got them, I don't doubt for a second that we're smoking them, if you know what I mean. On top of all that, in July, it seemed like the Maduro regime was just racking up terrible PR stories, like they were fucking collecting them, hoping they would increase in value so they could sell them later. Just hoarding bad news stories. One example, a Navy captain died in custody. July 1st, Rafael Acosta, captain in the Venezuelan Navy, died while in custody. He was arrested in late June and charged with taking part in the attempted coup slash plot to murder Maduro and his wife. He was already showing signs of distress when he was rolled into court in a wheelchair and could only say, help me, help me. When asked to stand, he fainted and was rushed to a hospital where he died shortly thereafter. His lawyers and human rights observers both claim his death was the result of torture at the hands of the Maduro regime. That's almost certainly true. And this was one of the guys accused of plotting that coup attempt. So I don't doubt for a second that they fucking tortured him. And I also don't doubt that it's what led to his death. Two men have been charged with homicide in his death, which seems surprising, but we'll get to the reason why it's actually not that surprising. You would think a government would at least try for a while to cover up 
something like this. But no, they charged two people with homicide right away. Both men were members of Venezuela's General Directorate of Military Intelligence. Also a bad look, a teen was blinded after being hit in the face with 52 rubber bullets during a July 2nd protest in the city of San Cristobal over a shortage of cooking gas in the region. Hmm. 16 of the rubber buckshot pellets flew directly into his eyes. Shortly after the protest, Venezuelan authorities announced that two officers had been charged for attempted murder, improper use of a weapon, and cruel treatments in dealing with the protesters. So again, pretty quick justice coming from a regime that's been accused of doing shit like this and doing not much about it for years now. So what's with all of the the sudden rush to justice? That probably has a lot to do with a UN report that came out right around this same time that centered around Venezuela's special action forces, which they described in the report as a death squad. And what they specifically accused them of is staging death scenes to make it look like the people they killed were resisting or otherwise posed a threat in some way when they were really just going out and murdering political opponents and making it look justified. So you would think all of that would have really turned the tide in favor of the opposition in Venezuela. But you would be wrong. As I mentioned earlier, for one thing, by the time all this happened, people were already kind of losing patience with Juan Guaido. You can only go in front of the people so many times and say, this is it, we're going to do it, and then have it fail and still expect people to support you. And that's not conjecture or speculation on my part. There's another Reuters article that I'll link to on the website that features interviews with all sorts of people in Venezuela expressing that exact sentiment that they thought maybe Guaido was going to be the guy to fix things. And then no, not really. So people are losing patience with the opposition party, which doesn't help their cause at all. And the opposition party also found itself wrapped up in a scandal of its own in early July. The website, theintercept.com has been just doggedly covering the situation in Brazil, which is bonkers. It would take an entire other podcast to go into all the details. I very highly recommend checking out the documentary The Edge of Democracy on Netflix, which is a good primer on the situation in Brazil and how they got to where they are now, which is they basically elected their own Trump, Jair Bolsonaro. He is like Trump on steroids instead of Adderall, I guess. He is a scary, scary guy with a scary set of teeth, and he is in charge of Brazil. And the short version of how that all happened is that a few years ago, a Brazilian judge named Sergio Moro opened an investigation into a bribery scheme that has come to be known as Operation Car Wash. And this bribery scheme, it involved Brazil's state-run oil company, I believe, or one of Brazil's larger oil companies. And this was a bribery scheme that every politician for decades in that country knew about and probably profited from. And then out of the blue, a couple years ago, the 
president who was in office at the time, a woman named Dilma Rousseff, changed the laws in Brazil in a way that made investigating corruption a lot easier. And what happened is a lot of people in the opposition party realized, well, that's the end of us. People are going to open corruption investigations and realize we are, in fact, corrupt and our careers will be over. What can we do to stop this? The answer they came up with was, well, we'll just prosecute the president for corruption charges and her predecessor just to be on the safe side. And what this turned into was very obviously not a quest for justice and to to bring people to justice for things they've done wrong. It turned into a political tool that the opposition party could use to basically obliterate the ruling party and put their own guy in office. And it all fucking worked. And it was all very shady to the point that the reporting The Intercept has done on it is enough that a lot of convictions that were handed down in the Operation Car Wash scandal might be overturned. And one of the things that came out as it relates to Venezuela is that there was information in the Operation Car Wash files that could potentially be damaging to the Maduro regime. But it would be a massive abuse of power for the leadership of another country to take records from a criminal trial that is still underway that are supposed to not be available to the public and just give them to another country in hopes of destabilizing their political situation. It would absolutely be like if the attorney general here decided, well, I don't like the person running England right now, and I have this information that could damage that person, so I'm just going to pretend it didn't come from me, but just put it out there and hope that someone picks it up and discredits them. That would be a huge abuse of power if it happened here, and it did happen in Brazil. That's exactly what Sergio Moro and his team of prosecutors did in Brazil. They found this information that would be damaging to the Maduro regime. They knew they couldn't just fucking post it on the internet because people would say, hey, that's not your job as a judge in Brazil. And they were right. So they just uh, leaked it to a blogger in Venezuela, and she uploaded that shit to the internet. And The Intercept found out, and it made the opposition party in Venezuela look like they were kind of criminals too. And like they were willing to do whatever it took just to take power, which I think everyone knew that already. They've been doing whatever it takes to regain power since the late 90s, early 2000s. So that did not look good for the Guaido-led opposition. And then, to make matters worse, a third person emerged and claimed his role as new president of Venezuela. But not really. The guy's name is Henri Falcon. What a great name, right? He ran against Maduro in that contested election last year in May. And he's returned to the fray with designs on being president. Now think about that for a second. There was an election last year in May. We said the results of that were rigged. And because of that, a guy who wasn't even running is president now. And 50 countries around the world signed on and said, yep, 
that's how elections are supposed to work. What the fuck? If anything, you claim the guy who came in second is the new president, but we didn't do that. We just had our own guy and said, here's your new president. And we wonder why the people didn't just blindly accept it. So between Henri Falcon throwing his name in the ring as possibly being Venezuela's new legitimate president and the Operation Car Wash scandal and people just generally losing faith in Juan Guaido's ability to rile up the military in opposition to Maduro, all of that might actually lead to good news, I guess, because it's uh, with it becoming increasingly clear that a coup isn't going to happen. Now, the Maduro regime and the opposition have agreed to talks to hopefully sort this situation out in a manner that doesn't slaughter thousands of innocent civilians. And boy, would that be good news. The talks have actually been happening since around May, and they're being held in Barbados and mediated by Norway. Uh, Maduro even went on Venezuelan television and said that his party hopes to establish a, quote, platform of permanent dialogue, end quote, with the opposition and even propose bringing in businessmen and social movements as uh, into the fold. And as of now, talks are resuming. So who knows what will come of it? But at least the possibility of this ending without thousands of people dying seems to exist. And another uh, sign of progress on July 5th, Venezuela released 20 political prisoners, including Judge Maria Lourdes Afuni, who'd been locked up for almost 10 years. This is wildly important. Releasing political prisoners is one of the things that led to the troubles getting resolved in Northern Ireland. And that was also a conflict that carried on for decades. And the reason that's so instrumental is it demonstrates the difference between someone who's really just locking up political opponents because they want to stay in power forever and someone who is legitimately arresting people that they think pose a threat to the government. And by releasing those prisoners, you're kind of acknowledging that, well, what they're doing or what they did was also a political thing. And it comes down to more of a massive disagreement between two sides that sometimes the behavior gets into to criminal stuff. But at the end of the day, we realize, hey, this is politics, baby. Let's talk about it. So against all odds, progress seems to be on the march in Venezuela. I mean, I'm glad this episode is coming out tomorrow instead of like a week from now, because I'm sure I would say that at the end of this episode, wait a week to put it out. And in between that time, like we'll nuke Venezuela or something. Uh, God forbid, by the way, uh, I am legitimately uh, hopeful that this is going to end in a way that doesn't involve war and death. And that would be a really good thing for the people of Venezuela and for the world in general, for the country surrounding Venezuela, for fucking Major League Baseball, uh, who gets a lot of players from Venezuela. So many aspects of life would be a lot better if we weren't actively trying to ruin the lives of people whose only crime was electing a socialist. So, hey, there you go. Two episodes in a row. 
that uh, have more of an upbeat tone. I mean, this is no Joss Stone touring the world, obviously, but a uh, little bit of hope in Venezuela, maybe. Just the fact that Trump is tired of fucking with them is a good sign, if nothing else. And you know for damn sure I will uh, keep tabs on this and let you know what transpires next. But as for now, that's the episode. I hope you enjoyed it and found it informative. I hope the sound of my voice is pleasing to you. I hope it helps you sleep unless you're driving, in which case I hope it keeps you awake and fascinated with all of the facts and statistics I have to share with you about the country of Venezuela. I don't know what we'll be talking about next week. Who knows? I don't really have anything to plug. You can uh, check out patreon.com slash unpops for more uh, bonus episodes and bone con, things of the like. Uh, If you're listening to this the day it comes out, I got a show tonight in Newport Beach with Jeff May. How cool is that? Uh, Check out my Twitter. There's a link to buy tickets. Come see us tell jokes. And uh, I think that is it. Let's get the fuck out of here. Adam, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. I love you. (laughs)